0: Me back to where we left off last week, 1 Timothy chapter six, and um, we're going to pick up there in just a moment. And those of you in Wiley and Garland, and those of you in the Hughes campus that are joining us here in Saxey today, let me just say this: We've been saying this every week. Our, our focus is not to create guilt in you. I'm comparing our status in the world to the globe, and we just crossed eight billion people on the planet this last week, and uh, there are about you know, a few hundred million here in the U.S., but it's a small sampling, and yet we compare all of ourselves to an American model when we're a very small sampling of the global population, and if we really want to compare ourselves to the human experience, we need to do it globally, and when we do it globally, we have a different place in the world than what we think on an everyday basis, and when I start making those comparisons, the motivation is not guilt. The motivation on this Sunday before gratitude, this series that's leading us to Thanksgiving, uh, is, 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 is to foster gratitude in our hearts because guilt never changed anybody. So I want you to see the blessings and feel authentic and genuine gratitude. So as you're finding your place in your Bibles and on your devices to First Timothy, remember what we said a couple weeks ago. By global standards, just about every one of us would be considered affluent. If you didn't wake up this morning worried about running out of clean drinking water and you're not worried about running out of enough food to eat today, or you drove a car to church today. You, by global standards, are wealthy and affluent. But probably nobody listening to my, me right now would consider themselves rich. Compared to the rest of the world, most of us are. And that's the problem with this thing we've called affluenza. Nobody believes they have it, nobody is willing to admit they have it. But remember, I've said a lot of technical definitions about affluenza, but it just kind of basically boils down to this. Affluenza is the materialistic infectious desire for more, more money, which gives us more security and more stability, which can buy us more comfort, the infectious desire for more. But if people don't realize they have the disease, they're never going to seek the cure. There is a cure. The Bible in so many different places addresses materialism and this affluenza disease But we skip past those verses. We dismiss them because we don't see ourselves as affluent. We just assume that that verse is for somebody else when in reality it does apply to us, especially compared to everyone else in the world. In 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul is telling a young pastor named Timothy how to encourage the affluent people in his church encourage them toward spiritual maturity. So he singles out some things that affluent people need to hear. And he says, tell this to the people in your church. He offers Timothy the antidote to affluenza and instructs this young pastor on how affluent people can manage their blessings, their affluence in a way that honors God. Here's what Paul says in verse 17, command those who are rich In this present world, not to be arrogant, we talked about that last week, that was point one, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, that was point two, but to put their hope in God, that was point three, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, that was point four. So here was the summation of last week. Don't be arrogant, don't put your hope in wealth, put your hope in God who richly provides. So obviously the conversation is about where we put our hope. So we used this phrase last week, the migration of hope, and that's an important phrase that I want you to hold on to again today, because in our materialistic culture, if we're not careful, our hope and our trust, our dependence, our source of security will migrate away from God and we'll end up placing it in our assets. The more affluent we are, the more intentional we have to become in guarding against the migration of our hope. So we left here last week making a declaration that would help us guard our hope from migrating away from God into stuff, and we declared this when we left, I will not place my hope in riches, but in him who richly provides, right out of 1 Timothy six seventeen. So why trust the gift when you can have constant hope in the gift giver? So we left off last week asking the question, in a culture of rabid materialism, okay, when so many of us are infected with affluenza, what else can we do to keep our hope from migrating? And if we realize in an honest assessment of our life that our hope has already started migrating, how do I get my hope back and then give it to God? Paul answers that question clearly in the very next verse, verse 18, and we're going to look at it, but before I read it. Before I go on, let me give you a word of caution, because I know everybody listening to me right now is not a Christian, or at least not a committed Christian, and so if some, some people are listening to me don't even like church, and, and, and you're a person maybe that thinks all the church wants is your money, or maybe you're a church person and you're uncomfortable with conversations like what we're about to have. Let me just challenge you, hang with me, because I promise you today, I, I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about giving your money to the church. There's not going to be a bait and switch at the end of this service. I'm not going to take an offering. We're not launching some time of giving campaign. We're talking about how to keep our hope from migrating toward the uncertainty of wealth. We're talking about how to overcome the tug of materialism and selfishness in our hearts. And we're talking about how to manage God's blessings in our life in a way that serves people and honors God. And Paul tells us how to do that clearly in verse 18. He's got a to-do list, and we're going to walk through each of them. Here's the first one. Command them. He's telling, command the affluent people in your church, Timothy, command them to do good. Now, what, what I want you to notice is he doesn't command them to be good. He commands them to do good. All Christians, rich, poor, in between everybody, they're commanded to be good. So, He's not commanding them to be good. We're all commanded to be good. He's commanding this group of people to do good. Remember, he's talking specifically to affluent people here, rich Christians, middle-income Christians, uh, every Christian, we're all called to do good at a certain level. We're supposed to be good. We're supposed to do good. But you can tell by Paul's comments, he's asking us to do more than an average level of good. And he makes this clear in the very next phrase. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. In other words, don't just be an average do-gooder, be an above average do-gooder. Because the more you've been blessed with and the more you have, the more opportunity you have to do good for others. Let me say it another way. If you have more than many, you have more opportunity than many. To do good. But let me tell you why that's hard for most Americans. The more affluent you are, the more discretionary time you have. The more time you have, the more options you have. And we wind up spending all of those options in our discretionary time on us. Our time gets eaten up with self interest. Now, hear me. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your free time with hobbies and self-interest and recreation and all that. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the Apostle Paul is warning those of us who have discretionary time and money, those resources in our life. He's saying, as your wealth increases, your opportunities are going to increase. And if you're not careful, your self-interest are going to eat up all your time and all your money. And you're going to consume your time serving personal wants and needs instead of serving the interest of God and other people. People. And we said this back a couple of weeks ago in week one. We're so blessed in this country that most of us only have to work five or six days a week to have seven days of food and shelter. And much of the world's population can't imagine that being able to work five days a week and having enough food and shelter to last seven days. And what would be even more astounding to the rest of the world's population. Is that in this country there may be four or five people living in one house, and that house only sends one wage earner into the workforce to work five days, and that one wage earner makes enough money to provide enough food and shelter for everybody living in that house. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in our world would find that unbelievable. We take our blessings for granted. Remember, the gold isn't guilt, it's gratitude for what we overlook every day in our life. Be grateful. Many of us think for some, because we live in this country and it's even possible in this country, we feel like that somebody owes us a two-day weekend. We just feel that way, okay, because we're we're expecting discretionary time. But get this, if you work 60 hours a week and sleep eight hours a night, and I can tell by scanning this room, all y'all didn't get eight hours of sleep last night, but I, so neither did I, all right, I get that. But we got to pick a number, and they tell us we're supposed to get eight, so let's use eight. All right, so if you work 60 hours a week and you got eight hours of sleep every night, that means you still have every week 52 hours to do whatever you want to do. Most of the people in the world can't imagine that much discretionary time. And I know you're sitting here thinking, but, but I'm busy, Pastor, and so am I. We're all busy, but a lot of us are so busy because we filled our discretionary time with stuff, stuff that's not honoring God and serving other people. So let me tell you something we already know. We all tend to waste whatever we have extra of, whether it's the clothes in your closet you haven't worn in years, or it's the freezer-burned food in the deep freeze in your garage, or it's the money left over after the bills paid. If we're not intentional, we end up wasting the extra. And Paul's point here is tell affluent people to pay attention to their extra. He's saying, those of us that have extra have extra responsibilities. And he's saying, I don't want you to be average in doing good. I want you to be rich in good deeds because the more blessed and affluent you are, the more opportunity you're going to have to do good for God and others. But those with affluenza end up spending all their time and resources on themselves and they, they never really manage God's blessings in their life in a way that honors God because the underlying assumption in their life, all of these things in my life are for my own personal consumption. We're going to talk about that more next week. It's the the consumption assumption, okay? Jesus does a parable on that. We're going to talk about that. But Paul goes on in verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In our culture, we assume that The more affluent people are, the more generous they are and the more they're willing to share. But that's not the case. Scientifically, it's been proven over and over again in study after study in this country that the more money a person makes, the less percentage of their money that they give away. So the more money a person makes, the less generous they become. Now, wealthy people will give larger sums of money. But as they get wealthier, they give a lesser percentage of their money away than when they had less. Here's why. When you start accumulating stuff, the assumption is that you can save your way to safety. And when you have more than most, the temptation is to hold tightly to what you have and protect it, and your hope starts migrating toward your assets. I want you to listen. What I'm about to show you is incredibly important. It's as practical and simple as it is powerful, because it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus, and that's usually what he tells us, very simple, but life-changing things. So I want you to lean into this. And before I tell you, let me just, let me just say this again. Some of you don't know me. I have no motive for showing you this except to help you mature spiritually and to help you get over affluenza, and to beat the culture's tug of materialism in all of our lives. There's no gotcha at the end. There's no appeal. I don't want you wondering while I'm talking about this, where's he really going? There is no bait and switch, all right? I just want you to listen to this, process it in your heart, and apply it to your life. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you ever come back to church here or not, whether you ever watch online again or not, I'm about to share some words from Jesus that have the power to transform every facet of our lives if we listen and apply them. Let me give you the principle first, and then we're gonna read where Jesus says it, where Jesus teaches it. It's gonna sound overly simplistic, but just think through the implications it will have in your life when you follow through on it. Here's the principle the number of dollars don't matter. The issue is percentage. Okay, just think about it for a minute. Do you think the creator of the universe is impressed by the number of zeros when you write a check? The dollars at the end, the zeros at the end of your dollars when people give things away. We're impressed because we're comparing that gift, those dollars, to what we have or give or what we know others have or give. But Jesus shows us that God is not moved by the zeros at the end. He's moved by percentage. We're about to read in Luke 21, if you want to flip there, and and, and the setting of Luke 21, Jesus has his disciples with him. He wants to give these men. He's about to entrust the ministry to, uh, to, he's giving them a leadership lesson. So they go to the temple, and the way alms and offerings were collected in that day, people could see what you gave. I mean, there's these receptacles, and when you put it in, if you were watching, you could see whether it was a large offering or a small offering. Jesus gathers his guys together, and he says, hey, I want to show you something. I want you to watch people putting in their offering, okay? It says this in verse 1, Luke 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. People were known to watch this moment and because of that, the rich often came and gave large amounts in order to be seen. It made them feel good about being generous and it made them feel good that they were being noticed by others. But here's this poor widow. She comes by and drops in two small copper coins. If you grew up in church, you heard those coins referred to as mites and the King James Version of the Bible calls them mites, and we call this passage the story about the widow's might. That's a King James word. But when Jesus was teaching this, he actually used another word that reveals culturally just how small this gift was. It was the smallest currency known in Palestine in that day and time. It was so small, there was no Greek or Roman currency equivalent. It was so small, it was almost unmeasurable. So this poor widow takes these two copper coins that would have been so worthless in her day, Most people would have seen them in the dirt and not even bothered to stoop over and pick them up, and she gives those two coins as an offering to God. Now, just to give you an idea of how small her offering was, it was one 128th of a denarius. So that's a fraction, one, on top of one hundred and twenty-eight. One one twenty-eighth 128th of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage, okay? So if you do the math... Her gift would have been the equivalent of giving six minutes of one day's work. But here's the key. It's all she had. Listen, I don't care if you hear anything else I say today, pay attention to this. Pay attention to what Jesus says here about her gift and let it get immersed into the way you think about your time and your money. He said to his disciples as they watched this unfold, truly I tell you, This poor widow has put in more than all the others. Everybody say more. How could she have put in more? I mean, I'm sure the disciples looked at him and say, but what about the guy that gave a 1,000? What about the guy that gave 10,000? Or if the conversation would have happened today, what about the people that donated their Apple stock or their Amazon stock? How could two copper coins really be more Jesus is saying here, the zeros on the end don't move the heart of God, percentages do. As wealth grows, affluence grows, people give less and less percentage away because we have this assumption we can hoard our way to safety. But poor people don't think in those terms. They don't trust in their wealth. They know it's pointless to try to save their way to some imaginary line of safety, which is why when it comes to percentages, poor people always outgive rich people. Paul and Jesus are trying to make the same point. The reason Jesus draws attention to this widow in this moment is the same reason Paul is saying what he says in 1 Timothy 6. If you want materialism to lose its hold on you, if you want to beat affluenza, listen to their point. Affluent people should give larger sums and higher percentages. Paul says, be rich in good deeds. Be generous, not average generous. Everybody's supposed to be generous. I want you above average generous and willing to share. Our problem is we don't think in terms of percentages until tax time. Most of us don't decide a percentage to give and then live by an intentional giving plan. We just get to tax date. We do our taxes. We add up all of our charitable giving and say, wow, would you look at that? We gave this percentage of our income away. Most Americans don't give intentionally. They give spontaneously and emotionally. We get invited to a fundraiser or we see pictures of starving kids on the screens at church or there's this holiday deal at work or something going on for kids and our giving is usually spontaneous. It's usually driven by the emotion of the moment and we do it a lot so there's often a lot flowing out so we feel generous. The question is, are we? What percentage of what we have are we actually giving away. Now, your accountant may be impressed by the zeros when you do your taxes, but God isn't impressed by zeros. He's, according to Jesus, he's looking at percentage. If we're not careful, the only thing we'll end up giving away is what we have left over. And when we do that, we are an average do-gooder. And Paul is saying to those of us that have been blessed more than most of the people in the world, you need to be more than an average do-gooder. And one of the ways that we can learn to manage God's abundance in our life and, and ensure that our hope doesn't migrate is we have to learn how to make pre-decisions. Pre-decide the amount of income you're going to live on, pre-decide the percentage of your income you're going to save, and pre-decide the percentage of your income you're going to give away. You can't leave those important life decisions to emotion or to chance. It's not just a budgetary issue. It's a spiritual issue because you're managing things that have been entrusted to you by God. No matter how much you have or don't have and no matter where you are right now financially, you need to start by making some pre-decisions. And here's how that works in our lives when it comes to being generous. Pre-decide whatever percentage you pick, pick it. Predecide what percentage you're going to give away and then give that first. This makes you focused on something other than yourself. Focus on God, focus on others, and in that way, we don't end up giving the leftovers and feeling generous when in actuality, we really aren't. And going back to what Paul said in the beginning about being rich in good deeds, practically pick two or three organizations that you believe in. You believe their mission in the world is making a difference and predecide what percentage you're going to give away in the course of a year to that organization or those organizations, give it off the top of every dollar you make. Spend time in those organizations, serve them, volunteer in them, be rich in good deeds in partnership with them, because as those missions and those organizations capture your heart, you'll give more. And your generosity is going to be authentic, an authentic and genuine expression of love for people. It's that kind of predecision that destroys materialism and cures us of affluenza. That's why we've been giving you opportunities at the end of every week at the services every week to try to get your heart mobilized, to find something that you love and serve. And the hope is you'll get connected to those organizations and you'll serve there more and you'll give them more of your resources to make a difference in the world. We want to do what Paul is saying because when you sacrifice time and money for something that matters in service to other people outside of your own self-interest, it changes you. But for that to be meaningful, it can't always be spontaneous. Something's got to be intentional about it. You need to make some predecisions in your heart and be intentional. Let me give you an example. This moment that we're all experiencing right now, a service on a Sunday morning in church at multiple locations, you realize it takes hundreds of people to pull today off. If hundreds of people didn't get up early this morning, predecide someday earlier in the week, that they were going to show up and volunteer and serve at church today, they didn't make a pre-decision, this would be disastrous in this moment. I mean, what if today our servant leaders and volunteers had thought earlier in the week when they got an invitation to serve in a position, and they got an invitation, they didn't respond to that, you said, you know what, we're just going to wait till we wake up on Sunday and see how we feel. We're just going to play this by ear. We're going to see if the emotion is there on Sunday, and then if we do. No, they made pre-decisions. If they didn't make pre-decisions to say, yes, I'll be there, I'll serve God and other people, then this would be a disaster. We are blessed as a church every week because hundreds of people come early, stay late, making pre-decisions to serve God and you, and it's their pre-decision that makes it work. Spontaneous generosity, spontaneous service, it's awesome, but it's secondary, pre-decide. Pick a percentage of your time and your money and then pick two or three organizations that makes a difference in the world, making a difference in the world, and then give yourself away, your time, your money. Now, some of you, I know, that have been growing up in church, you're really religious, you're bothered right now because I'm saying, pick some organization. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about things outside the church. And you're like, Pastor, what about the church? I told you, I made you a promise. I'm not talking about the church today. Because this is the deal. Even if you're not a Christian, what Paul is saying here will change your life. If you can learn to invest your life in something outside of yourself to serve others, it will change you. So I don't care where you give, I don't care what you do, pick a percentage and invest. Now, obviously, I have a personal love for the local church. I was saved in the local church 32 years ago as an addict, and I've had a front row seat for 32 years to watch the local church change people's lives. So, yes. Haley and I give more than 10%. We didn't start there. We grew into that. But we give more than 10% of our income to the local church and and, and above and beyond that to some other organizations that we believe in. But the issue for me is not the church today. Some of you are bothered because I'm not talking about the tithe, but the Bible says 10%. But do you realize, those of you that are spiritually mature, that somebody that's living at zero generosity right now and they plug in 10% to a budget that doesn't have any room, it looks so insurmountable they'll never try? It's not about the zeros. It's about the heart. So why not just start at 1%? Start somewhere because it will change you. I don't care where you give it. Just take the journey and let it change you. You wouldn't believe how many people through the years have come to me and say, but where do we start, pastor? What percentage should I give? And so let me just give you a really practical answer, okay? The median income in this country is a little over $50,000, okay? That's not the average, that's the median. And that group of people, uh, statistically, in our country, give about 6% a year to charity, okay? But they do it by accident. They're the people that find out at the end of the year, oh, wow, look, we gave 6% of our income away. Randomly, emotionally, 6%. So here's what I would suggest. Become a percentage giver, and why not plug in the median? So, But instead of doing the 6%, randomly, pre-decide to do it so that at the end of the year, you didn't do it by accident, you invested on purpose. People often ask this question, but I have a lot of debt. Should I wait until I get out of debt before I start giving? And my answer to that is no, and let me tell you why. I understand the burden, but I'm going to tell you why. I've seen it happen so many times, how this changes people's life. When you start giving, I don't care if it's a fraction of a percent, you make a decision and you start sacrificing and being generous towards God and other people, it redirects your heart. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So here's what happens when an individual predecides something in their heart about their finances. When you give first, off the top, you save better And then you begin to spend less. And you start realizing what a demon debt can be in your life. And all of a sudden you realize that your debt is keeping you from putting money where your heart really is. And suddenly there's a motivation to live more responsibly in every area of your life and finances. And you start feeling compelled to reorder your financial world so you can invest in things that matter to you. Generosity reorders your heart in a way that changes the way you tolerate debt. Let's finish today by listening to what Paul said all together, his to-do list, all right? Command them to do good, not be good. All of us are commanded to to be good, but he said do good, and then he says be rich in good deeds. I don't want you to be average. If God has blessed you and you're fluent, and we are as Americans, I want you to be rich. I want you to excel in this thing and to be generous and willing to share because it'll change you. It'll change the world, but it'll change you. Here's what Paul is saying. If affluent people want to keep their hope from migrating, we need to do more, we need to give more, and we need to pre decide. Because if we don't pre decide, we're going to get swept away in the current of a materialistic culture that is fighting against everything I'm telling you right now. Okay? We have to pre decide. Can you imagine what would happen in our communities? What would happen in our country? if every person who claimed Jesus Christ as Lord would actually start living by Paul's advice and Jesus' advice. It would change, you know, if you Google, um, what do you think about Jesus? It's pretty good stuff. If you Google, what do you think about Christians? Boy, don't read that. That's not, that's not good stuff, okay? You realize if we started living this way, we started living this way, like really, took Paul's advice and Jesus' advice and started living this way, giving ourselves away, loving people, uh, reordering our lives, inconveniencing ourselves. It would change the face of Christianity. It would change the perception that people have about our faith. And that's Paul's point. That's Jesus's point. The entire reputation of our faith would be changed in this country. Let me just leave you with this little last example, just in case you're there. Um, I didn't even know they were going to be in the first service. They were, and they came and talked to me at the end, tearful at what God has done in their life. But uh, it's been almost 15 years ago. A middle-aged couple in our church came to me uh, 15 years ago. I was 33. You know, I was a lot younger than them. And um, they said, Pastor, we need to confess something. We're struggling. She said, I'm a pastor's daughter. I grew up, I know, I know about generosity. I grew up practicing tithing and giving. And she said, but somewhere along the way, we stopped. We started taking that. We quit budgeting and buying stuff we wanted and then we got some American idea in our head and we bought things we couldn't afford and we borrowed our way into an American dream and now we're upside down pretty bad. God's convicted us. We need to get our lives in order. We want to to learn how to give again. Can you help us? I'm going to tell you why it mattered to them so much. They expected me to legalistically say, if you don't give 10%, you're not honoring God and that's not what I said. I said, look, giving is not an option because because it changes you. The church isn't going to go under if you don't give. We're not going off the air. God this is God's. He's going to take care of it. Not about that. It's it's about your journey. So, where what is a sacrifice to you? 3%, 4%, what's a sacrifice? They said 1%. I said, "Okay. Start there. Start there. It's a hard issue. And let's meet in a few weeks. You for the next few weeks, you 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 figure out what 1% is and you give it first. And trust God we came back and by the time they came back they said you know what we started doing because we started budgeting to figure out how to give the one percent we started finding other areas in our life that were waste we thought were needs they were really wants we cut all that out and now we're already up to two percent and just say just I said just keep following that out see what God does as they got raises through the years and promotions and blessings, they didn't go buy more stuff because now they're living with predecisions, And so they started reorganizing and investing in things that matter and the percentage kept growing. I was standing right over there by that camera box about three years ago and the husband came to me and said, it'd been years since that initial conversation with tears in his eyes. He said, Pastor, we're at 11%. And I'm like how in the world? I called them by name. I said, he said, God's been so good. I've been promoted and my wife has bought the business and, 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 and she just came to me this morning. I didn't know if she was going to be here. And she hugged me with tears in her eyes. And she said, pastor, the story keeps growing. Now I have a chance to buy the building the business is in. And, and she, she said, I can't imagine where we are today from where we were when we first met with you. Some of you are where they were. Don't let religious people guilt you To the point you never start. Just, I don't care if it's two copper coins. God sees your heart. Start somewhere. And I don't care if you give it somewhere else. I don't care who you give it to. Just give yourself away. And watch God bless you. And watch him change your heart. Watch him change your life. I want you to stand with me all over this place today in Wiley there in Garland. Would you stand with me all over this place today? Um, I'm going to ask the prayer teams from all of our locations if they would make themselves available to serve you and I know what I'm telling you is really practical but we want to make people available to serve you because I was at the hospital yesterday. I've had phone calls this morning. People in our church are hurting and I know some of you, I, I, there's, I can't keep up with all of it. We have people that try to but I realize God knows and you came in here with brokenness physically and in your families and your finances and we don't want you to carry that by yourself this week of Thanksgiving. These people come, they got here early. They pre-decided to come to church today to work on this prayer team and they met early and they prayed together that whoever God sent their way, their prayer would be a a comfort, faith, that God will work miracles in your life. So just, we're waiting on you. We'll provide that space for you at the front of every campus today. We wanna serve you. on the screen, I'm going to ask them to put that QR code up and just leave it there for a while. It's a link to the serving opportunities. We have a few more opportunities left with Samaritan's Purse. Uh, we have some opportunities left with the homeless shelter in the cold of winter, but it's after Christmas. Um, but you filled the opportunities up so fast we had to take some of them down. Our missions trip to Togo is still open. It's still up. Follow that link. And look, if something we're providing doesn't work out, plug your family in somewhere, inconvenience yourself, serve somebody. Father, will you bless these people today? Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down upon them, Lord. Would you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their direction today and would you give them peace? God, I ask you help beat affluenza in our life and materialism mobilize us as a generous army serving God and others as we leave this place today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. These altars are open today. God bless you.